Good afternoon. Thanks to all of you for coming. I hope you've had your lunch already or you'll have it afterwards. Uh, talking about portraits, of kind of an unusual portrait of Washington on the cover of this book. How many of you are familiar with this portrait before? This was by a guy named Grant Wood, and he painted a couple of satirical portraits of Washington in the 1930s, uh, which was a much more kind of a cynical age. It was the age of Will Rogers, and I have a couple of jokes that Will Rogers wrote about Washington in here. And uh, it's called Parson Weems' Fable. And what you don't see on what they chose to put on the cover here, there's a man on the side pulling back a curtain, and that's Parson Weems, and he has kind of this sly smile on his face. And you see young George Washington with a rather unusual head and uh, his father having just chopped down the cherry tree and slaves working in the background, which is significant uh, because slaves were up to that time really invisible uh, in Washington's life, the story of the slaves that he kept. Uh, even at Mount Vernon, they didn't do much with the uh, the slave quarters or recording what they had experienced up to this time. But this is uh, an era of debunkery. It's actually called the word debunking, which you may have heard, was actually invented in the 1920s with reference to George Washington, uh, with reference to an author named W.A. Woodward, uh, who was a former businessman who had left Wall Street and was fed up with Rockefeller and fed up with uh, the world of high finance and business and commercialism. And uh, he used a word that Henry Ford had coined called bunk, which he meant hokum or garbage or nonsense. And he read this article in the London Times newspaper about First World War soldiers being deloused in the trenches. And so he combined this. He said, if soldiers can be deloused, then George Washington can be debunked. So he went a lot further, though, than simply trying to blow up the myths, which he did do. But he decided, I've got to tear Washington down, that he turned Washington into a kind of a glorified thug, uh, somebody who was a drunk, who was a champion cursor, who cheated on his wife, who thought and cared only about money, who blundered his way through the Revolutionary War and won by accident. And he kind of reflected that whole age of the 1920s, a very cynical time. And in fact, he and another uh, popular author named Rupert Hughes, who was a Hollywood movie guy, who also debunked Washington, became so successful in what they were doing that Washington disappeared from the American scene. Really, in effect, he disappeared. His picture remained. Yes, he ended up on the dollar bill. Yes, most schoolrooms had his portrait, and in the 1932 uh, bicentennial of his birth, uh, there was a campaign to put his picture up on walls and schools everywhere and his statue everywhere. But he was a very kind of an austere and a very distant figure. And by the time you got into World War II and the Cold War, Washington was just a face. You don't see him in World War II propaganda anywhere. You don't see him in Cold War propaganda in a very patriotic time in the 1950s. Washington just isn't there. It's as if all of the debunking and all the cynicism that had hit him 
in the 20s and 30s lasted until Washington disappeared from American life. And it really wasn't until the 1980s and the Reagan era that Washington again came back to the forefront of our national identity and our national memory. But it was a new era of myth-making. But I want to start with a day in December, December 14, 1799, when George Washington lay dying on his deathbed at Mount Vernon. And he had been out that day, he'd been riding, not that day, a couple of days before, riding through snow and sleet, uh, going around his farms to make sure everything was going all right, because that was the one thing that he loved was his farms and farming. And uh, he went out, he got snow in his hair and down his collar, and his wife suggested that he'd better change his clothes after he came in. He said, oh, no, don't, no I'm not going to bother with that right now. Uh, so he sat down to dinner, and he read a newspaper for a while, and eventually that night he went to bed, woke up with a severe inflammation in his throat and a fever. And eventually it was something called Quincy, we now know. His throat swelled up, and he gradually, over the next hours, suffocated and died on December 14th. Some of his final words on his deathbed, he didn't talk about God, he didn't talk about the afterlife, he didn't talk about somebody bringing in a minister, he didn't even fret or worry too much uh, about his farms or about anything else. He was worried about two things. He was worried about make sure we have the right will he told them where the will was, pull it out, make sure my estate is disposed properly. And he's concerned about his papers. He said, do be sure to keep recording and preserving my papers. These were almost his final words. And they show in his mind how important those papers were to his legacy. And that was because he was concerned about his own reputation. He was concerned about how not just people of his own time, but succeeding generations would think about him. But also because he understood that his papers were a testament to the founding of this nation. He called them a species of public property, sacred in my hands. Use that word sacred. Because they were the document that would show us who we are. It would show us where we came from. Washington's papers are not just a testament to the things that he did and the things that he thought, but they include all the letters that he received from, say, during the Revolutionary War, all of his generals, all of his officers, from common soldiers, from politicians, members of Congress, presidents of Congress, from governors, his own letters, and then through his presidency. All of these letters just document Washington and document who we are as a nation. So he died December 14, 1799. But he died, a lot of people don't realize, in active military service as commander-in-chief of our armed forces in a time of war. It was a time called the Quasi-War with France. There was a fear that French forces were going to invade the United States. There was this constant tension. We think about how we felt after September 11th. We thought invasion was imminent at that time. Washington had been called out of retirement, put in command of the army, 
and uh, Americans expected he'd be there if the French, maybe under Napoleon even, landed. And so when he died, there was this tremendous sense, not just of grief, but of fear that everyday Americans had. What's going to happen to us now? At every crisis in our nation's history, we'd always been able to turn to Washington. From the from French and Indian War to the Revolutionary War, up through all the political struggles, the Constitutional Convention, the creation of the presidency, George Washington defined the office of the presidency. And then again, in another time of war, we'd always been able to call on Washington. Now here we are in time of war, a new century coming upon us, a very weak nation, a very weak young nation, being pressured on the frontiers, being pressured from Europe. Our economy is in shambles. Washington is gone. It's hard for us to realize now that, that gap, that chasm, that Washington's disappearance from the scene left. It was really a very stressful, a very terrible time. Within weeks after Washington died, it's as if this collective wish developed of Americans to have him back. That somehow we can't believe that this man is gone. He is us. We have to have him back. He can't be gone forever. And this wish became so powerful, this demand became so powerful to bring Washington back that I think it was inevitable that somebody would come up, somebody of imagination, somebody of vision, to supply that need. And that man was Mason Locke Weems, or Parson Weems, the man who invented the cherry tree story. And the man who invented the story of Washington throwing the silver dollar across the Potomac River and invented all kinds of other stories. Early in 1800, Mason Locke Weems called himself a parson. He really wasn't. He had known Washington very briefly earlier on. He had married into a branch of the family. And he had visited Washington at Mount Vernon while he was still alive, very briefly. He wrote to a publisher named Matthew Carey in Philadelphia. And he said, Washington is gone. Millions are gaping to read something about him, to, to hear stories about him, to feel that he's real, to feel like he's one of us, and I'm the man to supply that need. And what was he thinking about? Money, first and foremost. He is really America's first pop historian, uh, and he knew his business. But he was also thinking about setting Washington again back into the national fabric as an example for us, somebody we can move on with. So he wrote and had published in 1800 uh, his short little biography of George Washington that included all these stories I've told you about. It was a huge hit. And as the years went by, up through the 1820s, it went on in edition after edition after edition. And each edition, Weems added more stories. Now these are things that some of them he made up, simply out of whole cloth. Others were probably legends and folk tales and family stories and gossip that he had heard from one place or another. So Weems's genius, though, was that instead of putting Washington up here you know, on a shelf as a marble bust or somebody you could just go to see in a museum 
or somebody who would be in the high realm of politicians and of well-educated people uh, who can study and who can read. He brought Washington down into average Americans' households. It was a Washington for children. It was a Washington for grandparents. It was a Washington for pioneers, for farmers, for workers, for shopkeepers, for everybody. It was a Washington everybody could understand. Because there was this need to feel that Washington was one of us. And really it was a need, literally, to feel like you could look him in the eye. That you could talk to him. That you could explain to him your struggles. And explain to him your visions and your hopes. And feel like he understands. He's really one of us. He shares my faith. He shares my politics. He shares my vision for this country. He shares my struggles. He experienced the same struggles. He experienced the same hopes. And that was the genius of Weems. Well, each generation that went on after that obviously changed. As we know, each generation has a new outlook on life, and they feel they need to kind of reject in some ways the generation of their parents, of what came before, and look in a new way. The one constant that didn't change as you go through the 19th century and the 20th century up to the time of the debunkers is the need for Washington to be there. Even decades after he died, Americans still felt such a strong need to have him there, but they needed him to change with them. One of the mistakes in presenting Washington, and I work a lot with kids and with school teachers, one of the the mistakes that we too often make is we kind of build him as a statue as if he's frozen in time. And there are two things that are wrong with that. One is that when Washington was alive, he changed. He took a journey through life to become great, like the rest of us do. But also, the other thing that's wrong with that is that we continue to change, and we continue to have this need to see him in a different way and to see him in different facets. And that's why generation after generation that went by created kind of a new Washington, created a new image of Washington. As you go in the early part of the 19th century, uh, say around the 1830s, it was really a money-grubbing time. It was the era of P.T. Barnum. And people really saw Washington as somebody you can make a lot of money out of. I, I like, I use a phrase in the book, and I like to repeat it because I think it's cute, is that people saw the dollar bill in Washington before they saw Washington on the dollar bill. So there were people who forged Washington letters and sold them and made lots of money. There are people who forged Washington documents, Washington portraits, uh, and things to make a lot of money. And then there was somebody like P.T. Barnum. He went out and he bought an elderly slave named Joyce Heff. This is really a very tragic story. Uh, out in Kentucky, I think it was. Brought her over to the East Coast, put her on display in New York City and Philadelphia uh, and other major cities. And he coached her to say that she was George Washington's nanny and that she was 161 years old. And it was really pretty ridiculous, but Barnum didn't mind people thinking that it was ridiculous so long as they paid their tickets to come in and to talk with her. 
And she was very, very elderly and very weak. And he worked her and he worked her and he worked her 16-hour days, sometimes 20-hour days, just constantly to be up there uh, and responding to people who would come up and try to tease her and ask her to tell the cherry tree story over and over again, try to get her angry until eventually she broke down and she died. Well, Barnum says, hey, here's another opportunity. We've heard a lot of people saying, well, she wasn't really that old. He hired a doctor to dissect her on a stage in New York City, knowing full well that once he dissected her, he would find that she really wasn't that old, but he loved that. He said, okay, the doctor proclaimed, this has all been a big fake. Everybody starts yelling and laughing. Barnum was yelling and laughing with the rest of them. Uh, and enjoying it. And actually, this George Washington Act was the act that made Barnum his fame and his fortune. It was his very first big act. He went on from there uh, to become even greater. As the century progresses and you hit the Romantic era in Washington, people think of kind of strong emotions and they love passionate heroes who have a lot of you know, heaving emotions within them, and they do dramatic things. There are all kinds of stories about Washington that are just tremendous, tremendously romanticized and overdone. As you progress further into the century, and it becomes a much more pious age, the image of Washington the Christian becomes much more compelling. And there's this need to present him not just as a Christian, but as an evangelical Christian, as somebody who is passionately devoted to his faith, somebody who read his Bible every day, somebody who prayed in the snow at Valley Forge, which was a myth that Parson Weems made up uh, much earlier. And so he became an evangelical Washington. Toward the end of the 19th century, as tastes change, you get into the whole historic homes phenomenon. Mount Vernon began its restoration in the 1850s and 1860s under Anne Pam Cunningham and the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. Now, they were concerned with accuracy. Everything must be scrupulously exactly as it was. But for many other people, it was an opportunity to restore historic homes, to restore historic inns, as Americans became much more interested in their own heritage. That's where the George Washington slept here phenomenon comes from. Now, the best comparison now that I can make is that every historic home, every museum, every restaurant that's more than, say, 20 years old needs to have its ghost. And they need to advertise it on the travel channel that, you know, haunted travels and things like that. Uh, Because if they have a ghost, people will come and tell stories about things they heard at the night. Well, in the late 19th century, everybody had to have George Washington and say, he slept there. And it got to the point where he slept in so many places that people joked he must have slept his whole way through the revolution, through the presidency, and they wonder what he might have accomplished if he'd been an insomniac. Uh, He might have been able to do a lot more. This got to the point where people, say, at a historic inn, they'd claim wow, you know, Washington left this artifact behind. This is the very key that he used to open the door. And it got to the point where they'd say, well, after he left, they never made the bed. So you'd come in and you'd see the the covers still rumpled and messed up as if Washington had just climbed out. They even, it became a big business to display Washington's chamber pot that he'd used in the different places. And then it gets even more ridiculous. 
toward around 1900. And we tend to think of that time as really uptight, uh, extremely pious, extremely uh, interested in morals and, and strict codes of behavior. Americans became fascinated with Washington's love life. And all of these stories multiplied of all the different affairs that he had had. Martha Washington, at the same time, descended into her own very negative stereotype as an overweight, grouchy, stupid woman who sat in the corner and sewed with her little cap on her head. And George couldn't stand her. He married her for money. Uh, and he sought solace in the arms of Sally Fairfax and various other women. And so all these stories of his supposed love affairs, they got more and more sordid and more and more ridiculous. That was that time. We now know, recently, uh, Mount Vernon, and Pat Brady is going to be coming to speak here on March 2nd, could tell you about it, because uh, she worked on this and rehabilitating Martha and showing that actually she was, a very, when they got married, a very beautiful young woman who had a lot of charms, who was not well-educated but was very intelligent, and George relied on her, powerfully relied on her throughout the Revolution and later on, and they were very close and they loved each other. But that's something that disappeared uh, for a long time from our memory. By the time you get up to the World War I era, it's the era of Washington Kitsch. Uh, he's everywhere. He's the, George Washington slept here, all the stories, all the myths, all the fables. The Parson Weems stuff had been reprinted in something called the McGuffey Readers. I don't know if any of you have heard of the McGuffey Readers. The McGuffey Readers defined every school child's education from the mid-19th century up to, say, the early first quarter of the 20th century. Every child in their one-room schoolhouse read the McGuffey Readers. The McGuffey Readers took Weems's fables of Washington and repeated them. And so that's how the cherry tree myth and everything really got rolling. Abe Lincoln talked about how he read Weems through the, through the McGuffey readers. So by the time you get to the World War I era, this stuff is completely out of control. That's when the debunkers, as I discussed, kicked in. And Washington, after the debunkers really got to work and, and made up, tore him down and made up a new round of myths that would keep him down, he disappeared. The 1980s, even starts a little bit earlier than that with a biographer called Flexner, James Thomas Flexner, who wrote a very popular, still remains popular biography of George Washington, which is remarkable in that it's creative. Uh, it's a four-volume set. It's now been reissued in one volume. It's still probably one of the best-selling biographies of Washington available. Flexner's genius was that he was a lot like Weems. He thought like Weems did. He said, facts are not enough. I may have a letter that says, for example, George Washington was sick and he came home from the, Revolution, from the French and Indian War. That's all it says, and he felt sick. So Flexner would tell stories of Washington sagging on his horse and riding up to the front door at Mount Vernon and sliding off and pushing his way through the door, staggering up the stairs and throwing himself on his bed. And then a letter from Sally Fairfax arrives, and he hops out of bed, and he's suddenly uh, reinvigorated. 
Flexner knew how to get the storytelling back into George Washington, to get the myth back into George Washington. And he's a beautiful storyteller. And this uh, miniseries with Barry Bostwick came out in the 80s, a new TV miniseries on George Washington, was inspired by Flexner's biography. But the main thing is the, in the 80s is that is an era of renewed patriotism. Ronald Reagan was really inspired by Washington, spoke about him quite a lot. He said the most sublime image of Washington, of, of our whole history, he said, is of Washington kneeling in the snow at Valley Forge and praying for supplication, for deliverance um, from all of our trials. Never happened, but it still was a very powerful image. Since the Reagan era, we've entered into a new era of myth-making. Washington and the Founding Fathers have really come back to the forefront of our thought. Uh, As all of you know, Washington books and books about the Founders are extremely popular, and deservedly so. Many of them are, are really wonderful books, and they do a good job. But as part of this, this passionate need, again, that we're feeling to bring them back into our lives... We want to believe that they're just like us. We want to believe so much that Washington was a man you could shake his hand and look him in the eye and he would say, yes, I understand exactly what you're saying. And I couldn't agree more. So now we have myths and stories developing on the right and on the left on the religious end of the spectrum, on the irreligious end of the spectrum. That Washington, on the one hand, smoked marijuana and grew marijuana. And he would have been the first to argue for legalizing marijuana. No, it's not true. The image that Washington supposedly had a child with a slave. Absolutely no evidence for it, but it became a very compelling story in the wake of the Sally Hemming Thomas Jefferson scandal, if you can call it that. And there is plenty of evidence for the Jefferson uh, thing. But for Washington, there's none. But it was something that some people needed to believe. On the other hand, images of Washington as an evangelical Christian have again become very compelling and very powerful. Uh, There are quotations innumerable about, I think probably the most popular one, Uh, that folks like Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity like to repeat, is that uh, you cannot rightly govern the world without God in the Bible. And it's attributed to Washington. You can look for it on the Internet. You'll find it in a million different places. There's no evidence that he ever said it, that he ever wrote it. It doesn't appear anywhere in any of his works. There's not one scrap of evidence he ever said it. That and many others are made up. There's a George Washington prayer book which is a forgery, a 19th century forgery, which many people believe is genuine, uh, that he supposedly read it every day and prayed every day. On the other hand, there are people who try to prove that Washington was an atheist or that Washington was a deist, which also really isn't true. Washington was kind of in a very vague, difficult-to-define area with his beliefs and his philosophy, but that's not satisfactory for most people. It's not enough We need to believe he felt like we did. So there are people who, in politics too, now are trying to show that Washington was against gun control or that Washington 
was opposed to big government or all of these other things, a lot of these things are kind of modifications of things that he really said. Some of them are outright forgeries. But they're all evidence of this need, again, we need to feel that he's like us. So the question I would end with that I think we all really need to ask ourselves is, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And I didn't like, uh, as I wrote this book, I didn't want to kind of seem like I was just a grouchy academic who was just wagging my finger and saying, no, 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 that's not true, no, no, no. Because that's silly and pointless, really. Uh, But I wanted it to be a humorous book because I think we all have that need. I have the same need that other people do to want to believe that something's true about somebody that I admire. And it's very easy to fall into that trap. I made a couple of mistakes in my previous books with wanting to believe something is true. Is it a bad thing that we've reached this point where we really feel this need to know Washington, to know Jefferson, to know the other founders? Is it a bad thing that kids are really excited to hear their story well told? Is it a bad thing that popular authors who may not be trained historians are getting us excited about the founders by telling great stories that may have a little exaggeration here and there? Is it a bad thing that uh, there are some screen treatments, TV movies about Washington and the Revolution that have errors in them, so long as they tell a good story? Is that really such a bad thing? Uh, And I would leave that open to all of us to, to think about and possibly discuss. Thank you.